Beloved, if you have, and I pray that you do, and I know you do in the pew, God's holy word, if you would turn to Colossians chapter 3, Colossians chapter 3, we're going to be looking at verses 8 through 14 this morning, 8 through 14. I've entitled the sermon, Sanctification, Learning How to Dress as God's Holy and Beloved Children. Sanctification, Learning How to Dress as God's Holy and Beloved Children. Last time we were together in the book of Colossians, we saw that as those dead to the reign and power of sin, not that we don't sin Still, but we do not sin and are not characterized by sin. It's now been defeated. And now that we are alive in Christ, we were exhorted to put to death what is earthly, if you will, what is worldly, what characterizes the flesh, that sinful nature that we have by virtue of our union with Adam that once characterized us, we must put it to death. We must be killing sin or sin will be killing us. We saw that we must put to death sexual morality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Well, today the exhortations that flow out of the great work of redemption that Christ has accomplished for us and is now accomplishing in us in our sanctification, they continue that in Christ we must put off, and we're going to look at five vices or sinful characteristics that once marked us, we must continually be putting them off, and we must be continually putting on those Christ-like virtues or fruits of the Spirit that now are to characterize us as those who've been raised from the dead, those who are new creations in Jesus Christ, those who have a new identity who are no longer characterized by our Adamic fallen nature, but now characterized by our Christ-like nature, what we are to wear and what we are not to wear. Well, let's look at God's holy word. Again, we're going to look at uh, Colossians 3. I'm going to pick up reading at verse 5, but we're going to look particularly at verses 8 through 14. This is God's holy and infallible word. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, or worldly, sexual morality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On the account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self, or man, anthropos, man, you've put him off with its practices or deeds, and have put on the new self, or man, in Christ Jesus, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on then as God's chosen ones or elect, 
holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another, and if anyone has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, just as or as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. And above all, these put on love, which binds or unites everything together in perfect harmony. harmony. Thus far the reading of God's infallible word. May he add his eternal blessing to it. Let us pray and seek his face. Our Father and our God, you've called us to be who we are in Jesus Christ, to be characterized by the fruits of the Spirit, not the deeds of the flesh. And this can only come about by virtue of our remaining in the vine, for apart from him we can do nothing. So, Lord, we would pray this day that you would bless the words of my mouth and the meditation of our heart as we sit under your word, that you might reproduce life in us, that the world might know that you sent the Son, Father, by our unity and by the fruits of the Spirit that characterize the body of Christ, the city on the hill, the light of the world as the church, the community of the firstborn, because Christ has been raised, the first fruits of the great harvest that yet remains, that is coming. So, Lord, do this for your glory and our eternal good. We pray in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. One summer, as a teenager, I worked for a metal worker or a welder, if you will, those who work in metal and scrap and so forth. It was one of the dirtiest jobs that I ever had. We worked in this old tin building. It would get extremely hot in the summer when the humidity was high here in the state of Virginia. You begin to sweat. As you'd work, you'd just show up, you'd sweat. You'd get out of the car, you'd go to work, and you'd just start sweating. It's full of grime and dirt. There was everywhere. It was just a nasty place to work. And I was designated the, the primer guy. My responsibility was to paint the metal, that is, to prepare the metal to be used. It must be painted with a primer so it won't rust and self destroy. I would come home after work, after painting and serving and working in my place of business, covered in red paint. One of the things I looked forward to after work was taking that shower, right? You've been there. Some of you yesterday were working so hard and laboriously here at the, the church, and we're so thankful for that. Mr. Yancey referred to that in his prayer, and we're thankful for that. But you come home, and one of the things you look forward to is that shower. And as you get into the shower and you cut the water on, the filth and the grime and the smell begins to fall away, as it were, and you watch it swirl in the bottom of the tub, and it goes away. And sometimes I used to have to wash a couple of times, right, get that stuff out of my hair. I might even have some today, but fortunately some of my hair is gone, so I don't have to worry about that so much, so maybe it's gone with it. But one of the things I loved to do was to take that shower, and I felt like a new person. I was invigorated. But I want you to imagine with me today if after washing up I did the unthinkable, Rather than put on that new set of clothes that felt so good to dawn right after taking that shower, right? We all know this feeling. We've all experienced it. But I was to put those sweat-soaked, smelly, grimy clothes back on that I'd worn to work. 
That's enough to make one cringe. You'd have to peel them off of you. Now you're going to put them right back on. We can't imagine doing such a thing. Yet many professing believers in our Lord Jesus Christ often clothe themselves with sinful behaviors and practices that do not fit our new purified identity in the Lord Jesus Christ. We're still walking around, as it were, in those grave clothes, those smelly clothes, those grimy clothes that were to take off. You see, saints, by grace we've been washed, we've been justified. I want you to know this morning that you can be no more justified than you are right now in the Lord Jesus Christ. 10,000 years from now, you will be no more justified than you are right now because your justification is God incarnate who sits at the Father's right hand. Who is your justification? The Lord, your righteousness. You see, it doesn't increase and it doesn't diminish. Your sanctification, while definitive in some aspect, is spoken of as being progressive, right? You're becoming who you are now positionally in Jesus Christ. And that's going to increase over a period of time as new creations in Jesus Christ. We're to clothe ourselves accordingly. And here in Colossians 3, 18 to 14, Paul instructs us what to put off those smelly, grimy clothes that you've worked in all day, and what to put on, that new identity, those, those new virtues, those new fruits of the Spirit that are now to characterize you as those in saving union with Jesus Christ. To put off and put on in the process of sanctification. And I want to say this, just particularly when we think about these, I want us to think about them not so much as individualistically, Meaning, while that's important, Paul gives these virtues, these vices to put off and these virtues to put on, in the context of the visible church, you see. We're to love and we're to put off and put on in the community, the body of Jesus Christ. You see, it doesn't happen in a vacuum, right? I just, I love humanity. It's just that guy beside me that I can't stand. See, I love all people, right? It's easy to say. It's easy to be a big talker, to talk about how we love and practice the virtues of Jesus Christ, and yet when we rub one another the wrong way, how quick we are to react and to snap and to think self-righteous thoughts about ourselves and diminish and look down upon others, not thinking of others better than yourself. You see, that remnant of sin, that it's been defeated, yet still remains in some ways in our hearts. It shows itself in the way that we interact with each other. So these are being lived out in community. So let's look at these two things, right? Putting off worldly attire, verses 8 to 11, and putting on Christ attire, verses 12 through 14. So first, putting off worldly attire, verses, 11, verses 8 through 11. Paul has just reminded the believers at Colossae they're no longer, they no longer walk as they once did, right, in sexual morality and purity and passion and covetousness, which is idolatry. That no longer characterizes their walk. Now he reminds them in verses 8 to 9 that dealing with sin is like changing clothes. Notice what he says there in verse 9, first part. But now you must put them all away. 
Well, what are they to put away? Well, Paul tells us. We're to put away anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. Right? Like smelly, dirty clothes, we must take them off. We must put them down. This verb, to put away, is the same verb that Luke uses in Acts 7, verse 58. Remember that scene there? They're stoning Stephen. They're putting off their garments and laying them at the feet of who? Saul of Tarsus. It's the very same verb. So the metaphor, the imagery here is put off, as you would put off clothes. As I'm going to take this jacket off now because I'm warm. I must put it off. That's what I must do. You see, that's what Paul is exhorting here. Put it to death. Right? So let's look at these just quickly. Put off anger and wrath. These are somewhat synonymous. Anger is that state of smoldering. Right? It's, it's seething under the covers, so to speak. It hasn't manifested itself yet, but it's there nonetheless. And then he says, put off wrath. Right? This connotes the explosion of the anger that's seething. Right? The explosion of anger in words or actions. This is a, a person who has a lack of self-control. This person is controlled by his passions. He's, he's characterized as a man who's impassioned. He has no self-control. He intends to harm another. Secondly, put off slander. It's in the presence of malice that often prompts people, excuse me, prompts people to slander. This word to slander is the word to blaspheme. You see, when we speak ill of another, when we slander one made in God's image, we're slandering God. We're blaspheming. You see, that's what we're doing. That's an image bearer you're speaking ill of there. You're seething in your anger, dismissive in your tone. James 3, 9 through 10, speaking of the dangers of the tongue, says this, with it, our tongue, we bless the Lord and Father. And with it we curse people who are made in His likeness. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be. How can it be? The same funnel that brings forth the fresh water can bring forth such salty water. It cannot be. It should not be. How can we say we love the triune God and then speak so dismissively slanderously, maliciously about those made in His image. How duplicitous, right? How double-minded must we be? Third way in Ephesians 4, 29, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth, but only such is good for building up, as it fits the occasion, that it may give what? Grace to those who hear. Grace. We're all about grace. We're a people of grace. We're redeemed by grace. We overflow with grace. We've been gripped by grace. Right? Grace characterizes our life. So how could we let any such talk come out of our mouths? Speaking only that which builds up. We must speak the truth in love. We would do well to remember the words of the Lord Jesus in Matthew 12, 36. I tell you, on the day of judgment, you will have to give an account for every careless word. I don't know if there's any more 
searching verse in the Word of God than that one. Every careless word you utter, for by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Paul concludes the list in verse 9, the second part. Do not lie. Why would he say that? Because there's very few things that can destroy the trust that we share in the body of Christ and a breach of that trust through lying, through lying to others. You see, that's what the false teachers were doing there in Colossae. They were lying to the people of God. They weren't speaking the truth in love. You see, lying ruptures the relationships in the church. Lying is that which characterizes the old man. And you're no longer in the old man. You're now in the last man, the the last Adam, the one who's the life-giving spirit, who gives life to your mortal bodies. So you no longer offer the instruments of your body unto sin, but unto righteousness. You see, this is what to characterize you. This is what to characterize me. You think the block sphere has ever heard these verses? You think maybe GA has ever heard these verses? Maybe Presbyterian. Hey, I'm preaching to myself. Put it away. You used to be characterized by lying. You were characterized by your father, the father of lies. But no more. You're no longer to be characterized as one who lies, but one who speaks the truth in love. It must be put away. It must be taken off. Get busy killing sin, or it's going to kill you. They say you can know a lot about a person about how they dress, right? And I think that's true. We live in a culture where we tend to think of clothes fundamentally about comfort, right? Or fashion. In the first century, though, clothes often revealed the identity and status of the person. You could tell a slave or a master by their dress, a merchant or a priest or a Roman official by their respective clothing. Well, there goes a priest. Well, there goes a slave. Well, there's a master. I can tell. How? Because they're characterized by what they wear. And that's exactly how Paul reasons here in Colossians 3. Look there at the second half of verse 9. You see, saints, you're no longer slaves, so stop dressing like a slave. Take off the grave clothes of the old man in Adam. Notice what he says, seeing that you have put off the old self, the old man with his practices, verse 10, and have put on the new self, a new man, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. You see, believer, you're no longer located, your GPS is no longer located as one who is in Adam. You see, salvation is not just a way to make you a better you, right? Kind of like an Oprah view of salvation. Just be the best you you can be. Apart from Jesus Christ, you're an object of wrath. So am I, destined for hell. And justly so, because God is holy. He judges all sin. But God, who is rich in mercy, plucked us out of that old man, and he put us in the new man, Jesus Christ. That's why no obscene talk is going to come from my mouth. Or if it is, it's going to be caught quickly, hopefully. If not by myself, by perhaps one of my brothers and sisters. 
who confronts me in the truth, in love. Brother, you need to put on Jesus Christ. You need to put off the old man. That old man died. You're no longer characterized by that man. You're located now in Jesus Christ. You're no longer a slave to sin, but by grace you've been redeemed. Your life is now hidden with Christ in God. You're no longer to be characterized by this sexual perverse generation in which we live. Right? That not characterize us. We don't even, it bothers me that we even speak of these things. Does it bother you? It should. You're now being remade in the image of your Creator through the work of the second Adam. He's renewing you. He's renovating you. Notice the language of Genesis here. when It refers to redemption, right? Isn't it? He's redeeming. He's recapturing. He's renovating you in the image of His Son. You see, the first Adam failed you, your father. You need another Adam, a faithful Adam, a true Israel to represent you in one whose image you might be remade. And that's what he's doing here. You're slowly being renovated. Notice the tense of the verb, renew, in verse 10. It's a passive. You're being renewed. Be encouraged. Right? Be encouraged. God's at work in you to will and to do what is good and pleasing in His sight. He's the renovator. You're the renovated, so to speak. You're under construction. You're no longer characterized or to be characterized by that old set of clothing you once wore. Verse 8, he calls us to put it off. You see, we need to remember that it's not just us who's at work. Saints, you're not just justified to go out and sanctify yourself, right? Sometimes we think that way. I think, seriously, in the Reformed community, well, you know, I believe in the article upon which the church stands or falls. I hear Pastor Levi preach it. I hear Pastor Bullock preach it, right? Justification, the act of God's free grace, whereby he pardons all of our sins, accepts us as righteous in his sight, only for the righteous of Christ imputed to us and received by faith alone. Oh, yes, that will preach, and it will. It will send the Presbyterian to dancing when he starts to understand it. But then somehow, there's a disconnect. It's somehow, well, you know, he justifies me. Now I need to get busy. Somehow divorced from him to sanctify myself, by, to pull up my own bootstraps, as it were, to, to be holy, apart from him, apart from his intercession, apart from his mediation. God wants us to remember that God is at work in you, right? That He sanctifies us. That sanctification is the work of God's free grace, right? He who began the good work in you is faithful to complete it. He has promised to finish what He started. So this morning, are you stumbling? Are you discouraged? You look at your heart, you look within it, you don't like what you see there? Why am I still struggling with that sin, (laughs) You would think now, I've walked with God 35 years, I'd be over this, right? I've got the t-shirt, I've moved on, but yet there it is. It continues to haunt me, it continues to chomp at my heels. Why am I struggling? 
Why can't I get over this? Maybe you're tempted to give up. Maybe you're tired of trying. You know, that's what happens. You go from ambivalent to despondent. And you think, well, what's the use? Some of you struggle with that. What's the use? What's the point of it? Oh, beloved, Paul reminds us here in verse 10 that it's God who ultimately renews us from one degree of glory to the next. What's the means through which He renews us? What you're doing right now, you're sitting under the Word of God. You're being disciplined by the Word of God. For the grace of God has appeared teaching you to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions. To put off and put on. To mortify, to vivify, right? That's what you're doing. That's what the Christian life's about. It's a battle. It's arduous and it's difficult and it's cross-bearing. But unless the seed falls to the ground and dies, it cannot bear much fruit. You must die. He must increase. You must decrease. You see, this is what it's all about. That's what Paul is telling us here. It's God himself who's doing this renewing. You see, your sanctification is a work of His free grace, and it cannot fail because God Himself cannot fail. Right? Easter's come. The first fruits of the resurrection has occurred. New creation has already begun. The invasion has begun. Christ is at work in you to will and do what is pleasing to His sight. As we've seen over and over again in Colossians, the problem is the false teachers there, right? Some of them are calling into question the sufficiency of Christ. You see, when you don't have orthodoxy, you have, don't have orthopraxy. And this lack of orthodoxy, this lack of sound biblical teaching is causing all kinds of problems and divisions in the church. But notice what Paul says there in verse 11. As we begin to have a a biblical orthodox view of sanctification, as we begin to put off and put on Jesus Christ, notice what happens. Notice what happens within the body. Biblical unity will begin to form. Verse 11. Here. You're thinking, where does Paul, what's the antecedent to the here? Well, here, the antecedent is God's new humanity in Jesus Christ, the church. Here in the church, there's not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. You see, beloved, the fracturing and the division that sin introduced is now being mended by the gospel. That in the church of Jesus Christ, there's no longer Republican and Democrat and black and white circumcised and uncircumcised, Jew and Gentile. But in Jesus Christ is all in all. We're one in Him. We're God's new humanity in this last Adam. What we have now in Christ transcends all human categorization and perception. Now, it does not mean that the various differences that we have are eradicated, but it does mean that they are relativized. The economics, the ethnicity, the the social distinctions no longer serve as barriers within the body of Christ. This is why Paul says that strange verse in Corinthians, I no longer judge men according to the flesh. What does he mean there? I no longer judge men by their resume, the worldly resume. Oh, that guy would be so beneficial to the church if he'd only become an elder. You see, that's not the calculus of the New Testament. The calculus of the New Testament is, is he godly? 
Is he broken and contrite, and does he tremble at the Word of God? You see, that's the prerequisite for the elder and the deacon and for all the children of God. You see, the banker and the bank janitor in Jesus Christ in worship pray to the same God and Father, and they stand on equal footing at the cross. It's the great leveler of men. We have no resume. What's our resume? Read the first part of Romans 3, 1 through 10. There's none righteous, no, not one. There's none who seek after God. There is none who understand. No, not one. That's my resume. That's your resume. But 321... But now, a righteous of God has been revealed, which the prophets of old have foretold. A righteous revealed in Jesus Christ. You see, it's his resume. It's his pedigree that I stand on. That we stand on in the body of Christ. You think about it. If, if the world saw something of this unity in the church, what would it be like? Well, Jesus tells us as much in John 17. See how they love one another? You, you see the, the, the tall, the short, the hair, the no hair, the black, the white, the rich, the poor? You see how they all come together in Jesus Christ and mutually encourage one another? Surely Jesus Christ was sent by the Father. All men will know you are my disciples by your love one for another. You see, if we had this type of unity... If we'd work toward this type of unity, if we'd start taking off those old, smelly, old, grimy garments that we had in Adam and, and start to put on more and more the image of God in Jesus Christ that's being renewed, right? Then the world would know. Well, sanctification is not just taking off the wrong clothes. It's also about putting on the correct ones. I know the ladies love this because I, I know they like clothes, right? I know my girls like clothes. I like clothes, too. I remember going before uh, going back to school in the summer. We would go out and go shopping. You could buy some new clothes for the school year. Be so excited about that. I'm going to new new pair of tennis shoes or whatever. Just being so excited, kids. You see, in Jesus Christ, you have a new set of clothes. You have a new wardrobe, right? You get to put it on. Not only do you have it, He gives you the willingness to put it on. He gives you the victory to put it on. And that's what we're told here in verses 12 through 14. Putting on Christ's attire. Notice what He says, right? He's just told us we belong to God's new humanity in Jesus Christ, where there's worldly distinctions. They're there, but they're no longer ultimate in the calculus of the kingdom of God. Notice what it, verse 12 begins, therefore, right, because you are one in Jesus Christ, right, Christ is all in all, notice what he says, therefore put on as God's chosen, elect, and holy, and beloved children, right? Notice what Paul does. He does this, now notice this. Once again, he grounds the people where? Just in case they forgot, where? In their what? In their identity. Notice that? He says, beloved, you're the chosen of God. You're the elect of God. You're beloved and holy. That's who you are, right? 
He wants us to know that we're loved, church. He wants us to know, as he does in Exodus 20, that he is the Lord our God who delivered us out of the house of bondage, out of the house of slavery. Therefore, you see how the commands flow from the indicative? Do you see how the commands flow from the gospel that's been accomplished by the last Adam? Therefore, in union with Christ, the first fruits of the resurrection, therefore, God's new humanity, notice what he says. He reminds us who we are. He reminds us that we're God's chosen and elect, holy and beloved. You see, not only are we God's new humanity, notice also that we're God's new Israel. What? Yeah. Who was the chosen? Who was the beloved and who was the holy in the old covenant? Israel. Israel. Deuteronomy 7. Right? Exodus 19. The same titles that Yahweh applied to ethnic Old Testament Israel is now applied to this Gentile congregation in the middle of Asia Minor. The church of Jesus Christ is the beloved of God. That we're holy in Jesus Christ. That we've been chosen. That we are the elect of God. We are the Israel of God. You see, we are those who have undergone a circumcision not made with hands, but rather through regeneration of the Spirit. We've been circumcised of the Spirit. We no longer have that heart of stone. We now have the heart of the new covenant that Ezekiel 36 promises us. I'm going to give you a heart of flesh, and I'm going to write my law on your heart. And I'm going to enable you by my Spirit to fulfill my law. Do you see how radical salvation is? You were dead, and now you're alive. I poured out my spirit in you because you are my beloved. You are my chosen. You are my elect. And now I'm going to enable you to put to death the deeds of the flesh in the power of the spirit that we might fulfill the law. That we might resemble who? Jesus Christ, the perfect son of God. Who is this God who does so great a thing for his people? You see how absurd it is in light of the glory and the magnitude and the immensity of salvation to somehow want to hold on to a worldly, sinful, Adamic identity? It's absurd. It's sin. You're to put it off and you're to put on. Well, let's look at what Paul says to put on. Notice how Christ-like these are. Notice how Christ-saturated these qualities are. And again, it's in the context of the body. It's in the context of a lot of one-anothering. Right? Notice first, put on compassionate hearts. Who has the most compassionate heart? 
the Father. The Father of mercies was compassionate. Who was compassionate and showed great pity and compassion to the sinner in the Gospels? The Lord Jesus Christ. Remember that scene there with the the man who has the leprosy? He comes to Jesus. He knows Jesus is, is able. He just doesn't know Jesus is willing. And he comes to Jesus and he has leprosy. And if we know anything about the Old Testament, to have leprosy was to be unclean, was to cry out when people would walk by, unclean, unclean, lest anyone get close enough to touch that person and somehow be contaminated. Here is this leper who knows Jesus is able, but he doesn't know Jesus is willing. And he says, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. And what does the Son of God, your Savior, say? I am willing. And he reaches out and he cleanses that man. Church, I want you to know that your Savior is able and your Savior is willing to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. That's our God. Don't you want to be like him? To fear him? To love him? to imitate Him, to look something like the triune God. That's the whole purpose for creation, that I and you, we, the body of Jesus Christ, God's new humanity, might look something like our Father who is in heaven, that men might see our good works and praise our Father and give Him the glory. You see, that's what it's all about. That's what it's all about. So put it on. Have the family likeness. Secondly, put on kindness. This is a gracious sensitivity towards others that is triggered by genuine care for them. Paul tells us that love is kind. It's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. The reason you believe this morning and you repented of your sin is because of God's kindness. Because the bowels of God, as it were, went out to you when He saw you in your filth. And He says, that one is mine. That one is my beloved. I choose Him, I choose her to be holy in my sight. Put it on. Put on humility. Right? In humility, we're to consider others better than ourselves. Christ embodied it. Philippians 2.8, he humbled himself by becoming obedient unto death, even death on the cross. We hear that and we go, how do we do that? How do we think of others better than I myself? I, I think I'm pretty good. But the Word of God says in Jesus Christ, put it on. Not just in theory, not just rhetorical flair because the minister was worked up about it. No, put it on. Put on humility. Put off pride and put on humility. Put on meekness. Considerate of others, their concerns, not demanding our own way. Right? Meekness is power under control. Unlike wrath and anger, because that person doesn't get what they want, they get anger. Angry, rather, and they emote. And they go over there and sit in the corner because they didn't get their own way, like a two-year-old. Put on meekness. Jesus was lowly of heart, gentle and lowly of heart. Right? That's one of the self-descriptions of 
the Son of God, he says, first and foremost, you think, well, I'm the King of kings and Lord of lords. No, come unto me, for I am gentle and lowly of heart. Who is this God who comes a man to teach us what it means to be a man? I often think about that. It blows my mind. Who is the God who has to become a man to teach me what it means to be an image bearer? The living God. The triune God. The God who's exalted on a cross. The cross of Calvary. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Put on patience. Right? The ability not to become frustrated and enraged but to make allowances for another's shortcomings and to tolerate their exasperating behavior. I thought to myself, well, that's what my session does for me. Right? Love is patient. It's long-suffering. Remember Paul's prayer in chapter 111? Being strengthened with all power according to His glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. You see, patience is what comes up when the kitchen gets hot. Verse 13, Paul expands on this fruit of patience, bearing with one another, and if anyone has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, just as the Lord in Jesus Christ has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. You see, the closer the relationship, the greater the potential for love, and also the greater opportunity to really show it, because the closer the objects, the greater chance of rubbing each other the wrong way. Hence the call. This call to be forbearing and patient doesn't happen in a vacuum, in an echo chamber. Right? Oh, I'm incredibly patient. Just don't let that guy cut me off. Or just don't let me get my way in the session meeting. Or at the church meeting. Or with Levi, my associate, I love. Doesn't he know I'm the senior minister here? How stupid. How vain. Whose glory? My own glory. Vain glory. Oh, beloved. But our God is so merciful and kind. Right? Full of compassion and loving mercy. Forgiving iniquity to a thousand generations. 10,000. You see, when complaints and grievances arise among the members in the church, and they will, we must have a willingness and attitude that is ready to forgive and a willingness to not only give it, but to receive it. Beloved, if you have some idea of just how great God's forgiveness is towards you, then there is very little you will not be ready to forgive your brother and sister when they cross you and they hurt you and they say all kinds of cruel and hurtful things about you. We're too proud. I'm too proud. And last of all, as you're preparing to leave the house, walk out the door, you've gotten up early that morning, you've taken off those old Adamic clothes that you once wore and you put on those new 
garments, there's one more item you must put on. Kind of like the overcoat. Binds it all together. Verse 14. Notice there. And above all. What does all mean? It's all. Above all, put on agape. Put on love. Which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Faith, hope, and love. You're going to put it on. You're going to put it on in Jesus Christ. Saints, love is the the bond that holds all these together. Compassion, the kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Qualities together within the body of Christ. Love is the end of the law. Romans 13.10 It's to what all the law is moving toward. Love. And where is it most clearly seen? On Good Friday, outside of Jerusalem on a hill called Calvary, where a cross with a beam jetting up vertically and a beam stretching across horizontally. In that hour, the triune God was glorified like he'd never been glorified before. In that hour, the Son of God was forsaken and abandoned. When he who knew no sin became sin for us, that we in him might become the righteous of God. In that hour, the Son of God was clothed with our malice and slander and wickedness and pride and envy and self-promotion and self-righteousness. In that hour, when the Son of God cried, it is finished, and the Father laid on him the iniquity of us all, in that hour. That's where it's seen. That's where love is made manifest for all to see. Ephesians 5, 3. Walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. I leave you with this, church. What are you going to put on in the morning? Monday's coming. Tomorrow morning, what are you going to put on? You know, what are you going to put on? What, what are you really going to put on? Obscene talk? Coarse jesting? Pride? Arrogance? Malice? Slander? Whether you're in the home, kids, right? When mom asks you to do something, are you going to do it without arguing and complaining? With joy. How about our bigger kids at work? When that employee doesn't do what you asked them to do, are you going to lash out at them? What about the world? Right? When you cut the news on, you get so discouraged and so depressed. Right? It's just such a downer. You're not going to put those grave clothes back on, are you? You're going to put them back on? Just like I did back in there in, I don't know, what was it, 1987 or whatever. I was going to work, coming home. It was August, covered in grime and dirt. And I'd peel those clothes off, take that shower, 
would I be so daring to put them back on after the shower? Well, you know what? Relative to our sin, those clothes are crystal and brightly clean. Oh, the sinfulness of sin. Oh, the holiness of God. That we would know something of it. That we might know something of the height, the depth, and the width of the love of God in Jesus Christ. For it's the grace of God that has appeared, teaching my heart to say no to ungodliness. Oh, it's not the law of God that's come that's teached my heart. No, it's the grace. It's the sweet grace found in the Son of God who gave me, who loved me and gave himself for me, who teaches me to say no to ungodliness. So what is sanctification? Well, I can give you the shorter catechism or the larger catechism answer, and we're going to look at that in a moment. Let me just give you this. And learning how to dress as God's holy and beloved children, that's what it is. That's what it is in practice. May God give us grace. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your goodness, your mercy. We thank you that you don't cast us off, that you don't strike us down with bolts from heaven, that fire doesn't fall and consume us every time we sin in thought, word, and deed. But you are long-suffering, full of mercy and grace and pity and compassion. As Levi read from Psalm 103, to those who fear you. Oh, our Father, we pray that we would know something that we might be gripped by grace. We might taste it and know that the Lord, He is good, that He has been good to me, that the lines for me have fallen in pleasant places. We pray, Father, that you would be glorified this week as we go out putting off and putting on all to the glory of Jesus. We pray in His holy name. Amen.